Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, each having six wings. With two each covered his face, and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, well, to me, for I'm ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and atonement is made for your sin. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. A reading from the book of Romans, chapter eight, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be also glorified with him. A reading from the Gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these 
thing, these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded to him and said, Jesus responded and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he is old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus responded and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, You are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you people, do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. If anybody follows the lectionary, you'll see that the book of Romans and the gospel, well, the book of Romans is staying the same. Uh, nothing changes for Pentecost or Easter, a couple days in Easter, um, our second reading changes, but doesn't change for Trinity Sunday and so the only ones that are special for Trinity Sunday are Isaiah and John. And to just give a quick background of Trinity uh, Sunday, obviously it's a celebration of the Holy Trinity, but it really wasn't started celebrating until like the eight or nine hundreds uh, until Gregory the, I can't remember if it was the seventh or the eighth, I think it was the seventh, but they weren't back to back. It was a couple of years. I think the seventh was in like the 700s and the eighth was in like the 900s, something like that. Um, but there wasn't any really need to it till after the 
Arian controversy and and um, and Catholicism is a holy day of obligation. And so, if any of you are Catholic, you gotta go to mass on Sunday again, um, or else you get extra purgatory purgatory points, which you can redeem at the end of your life. And so, <laughs> that was a good one. Anyways, uh, <laughs> and so. Um, we're going to look briefly at our Isaiah passage. And so something I was just thinking on uh, this week, which maybe is like obvious to everybody else, but I like when I learn new things and the Lord helps me to think about things differently. And so um, this is the third time in scripture where God is talking amongst a heavenly, talking about a heavenly pattern or in a heavenly vision or talking in heaven. And he uses the plural us. First one's in Genesis 3.22, let us make man in our image. The second one is in Genesis 11.7 at the Tower of Babel where he says, let us go down and confuse their language. And then the third one here um, in Isaiah where he directly says, uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And so... um, we don't need to go, and there's so many d- different distinct points about Christianity, and the main one, uh, I would say, in my estimation, is the Trinity, is the person of God being eternally one God in three persons, um, and, and what that means. And I think that's a huge uh, evangelistic apologetics point that's huge for, uh, and spills out into every area of Christian life. Um, but something I would just, I'm not going to talk too much about the Isaiah passage, except for, at least when I was reading this, it made me think a little bit more about when we talk about the ontological trinity, which is the nature of God being one God in three persons, and the economic trinity, God having the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having different roles. But um, a lot of times we think, of unity in the church. It's supposed to model the Godhead, which it is, we thought rightly. And we think of like Jesus Christ saying that the Father sent me and I I don't speak on my own behalf, but I speak on the Father's behalf. Whatever he tells me, I tell you kind of thing of where um, even though in the economic trinity, uh, the Father and the Spirit did not die on the cross for my sins, but um, God is so unified and God is so one that even though in the three different and distinct persons, they do separate things or have separate roles, each one of them is constantly working together with the other two persons of the Trinity. And uh, that's just something that I meditated on a little bit more this week because we think, and that spills out into practical life where we're a church, we're supposed to be unified, so we're all supposed to have one mind and we work together and that usually works out. But how I work is I work better alone. Uh, that's my thought. That's not me, maybe necessarily true. Uh, Noel might think differently. <laughs> but, um, you know, I tend to think that, but that would not be true. Uh, I would know that's not true because God created reality for me to live in and we'd actually be more unified. And when we work as one body as a church, uh, nobody does anything 
alone, although we have different giftings and different talents. Uh, none of us are supposed to use those in isolation as in like, um, you know, if someone has like the gift of service that they just uh, serve isolated, right? As in I go out and do things and I serve and because that's God's gifting and I have that motivational gift. Um, but that gifting is supposed to be used in a plurality of people as in, and that would spill into every stream as in who should I serve? Well, people in the church that would affect other people in the church, pulling other people in, getting ideas from other people and counsel about how would I serve better or more efficiently or whatever. Um, it just caused me to think more about the Godhead working in unity or even though economically there's distinctions, but ontologically those are so um, so united. Even their uh, economic distinctions are so united uh, with the other two members of the Trinity. Does that make sense? Am I even explaining what I'm thinking to, in a way that like anybody understands anything? We got like a couple head nods and so <laughs> that's good enough. All right. Um, and then I also just want to mention, this is the uh, maybe prototypical um, Isaiah passage, if not like all of scripture passage about uh, witnessing and calling and Isaiah's calling and what Isaiah did. What was a, one of the things we remember about prophets when we look at the office of a prophet is a prophet speaks on behalf of the entire nation, right? Or uh, on at least a group of people. And so um, sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But mostly in scripture, we see good examples. And so what Isaiah is doing isn't just send me in isolation. He is representing all of Israel, all of God's children uh, as a pattern that we'll later see in um, wherever we're talking about patterns. I wrote it down later in our gospel passage about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. But um, Isaiah is representing all of Israel. And so the season of Pentecost is a Season of witnessing, yay. Uh, guess what? Every season is a season of witnessing and testifying. Wow, because we just, we just learned in Easter that that's one of the main, um, main jobs of the church. And so uh, we talked about that on, on Pentecost, but um, in the seasons after Pentecost, we start to get into ordinary time um, after a couple uh, holy days. And... Um, one of the things about Isaiah was he was willing to step up. God didn't ask a question for Isaiah to not answer. God like lined up this answer for him, right? Or this opportunity. Uh, God wasn't really searching in the sense of like, I don't really know who should we send. And like the God has like talking to one another and Isaiah's like, hey, <laughs> hey Yahweh, I got an idea. I'll go. Did you ever think about that? No, he's lining this up um, for Isaiah's for Isaiah's response. And so um, we're going to talk, especially in our Romans, our next passage in Romans about the vital signs of life. If you don't have the five vital signs of life memorized with scripture passages, uh, you should. Um, they're pretty easy. They're just five. And so one of those signs of life um, is wanting to testify or witness about Jesus Christ. And so Isaiah was eager and ready right after he'd been cleansed and purged 
um, with a coal on his lips, and then he was ready to go and speak. And he was willing, and he was ready to sign up, right? Go send me. Um, I'd have to look up the name of the song, but there's a Christian metal band. Um, what's the Christian metal band's name? Dang it. Uh, Tommy Green is the, uh, is the lead singer. Sleeping Giant. You guys don't know your Christian metal songs and bands? They have a, a really good song uh, based off of this passage. And so you should find it and listen to it. I just don't remember what the name of the song is. It'll get you pumped. And so uh, as we move to Romans, I'm going to go ahead and open up there. And read a little bit. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Um, so just in this passage, read it on your own time. We, we see uh, the Trinity, the Godhead working here, um, very clearly mentions that everything is about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, but let's read. I'll just start at 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So one of the things that... Um, it's good in discipleship to understand this. This isn't something that... To, you have to weigh legalism with gospel truths. Is uh, If you look at the third bullet point there on Romans... Um, all the promises of judgment in scripture and life are in relation to the deeds we do in the body. Uh, it's not, um, we have, you know, earlier in Romans, it talks about justified through faith, but it, when it talks about judgment in Romans 1, it talks about the deeds done in the flesh, right? And so you get to like 2 Corinthians 5.10 that says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ Uh, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Right, in Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so... Um, one of those like litmus tests and why I usually, uh, one of the other vital signs of life besides the desire to witness and evangelize that we, I guess I didn't directly mention in the Isaiah passage, is that there are real lifestyle changes. And so um, one of the things I'm always working with people when I'm talking with people or doing Bible studies or anything um, is not saying you have to do this in order for Christ to accept, accept you. But if you don't see lifestyle changes, there's a huge problem. It means very directly in this passage um, that you're either living according to the flesh or you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh according to the spirit, right? And all, it says in verse 14, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, right? You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received a spirit of adoption of sons that we cry out, Abba, Father. And so anybody who has the spirit living and residing in them 
has a desire, or at least a seminal seed form, I want to stop sinning, and I'm not even, you might even, they might not even know what sinning is yet, but they just know they want to stop sinning and maybe want to please God. And so that's something, um, one of the reasons why you should memorize the five, the five vital signs of life with scriptures, because there's tons of scriptures for each one, is um, I always use that, and that was one of the uh, passages that Second Corinthians um, 5, 10 is one of the ones I memorized when I was an early Christian because I was like, when I realized that like, when I read the Bible for the first time, I was like, oh, God's going to not judge me based on some uh, loose sinner's prayer whether I said that or not. But he's actually going to judge you on your deeds. And that's a pretty big deal. Uh, that'll bring about the fear of God pretty quick if you have any uh, introspect at all. And so not to do it in a legalistic way, but you have to balance the paradox that God will judge you based on your deeds, but you can't have righteous deeds apart from the Spirit, and you can't get more of the Spirit apart from God adopting you. And so uh, life in the Spirit is self-evident, right? And uh, what does God use? Go back to Isaiah. How does God use, or what is the one means of grace God uses to change people? That other, other people have this vital sign of life and they go out and proclaim something. We can skip to Romans 10. It says, how will they hear unless someone speaks, right? And so, um, you know, if as we think about our uh, own walk in the Lord and disciple others, um, that's one thing that you should be attentive to is, is fruit of, is the spirit really residing in them? Do they really want... Uh, and desire lifestyle changes. And so, um, kind of going backwards, when he says, uh, I'm sorry, this is not the passage I had in mind where he says this is how we ought to think. But it is how we ought to think. Um, for if you live according to the flesh, uh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live um, as debtors, right? We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And so the mature way to think is not, is, uh, that, not that I can stop sinning and if I really want to, I can try hard, is that, but it's more of an honor thing of I owe it to Christ to put, uh, I, I guess I don't really like using the word sinning because that's, to light and undefined. But, um, but I'm indebted to Christ to honor him, to obey him, to glorify him, right? This is how a mature Christian would think is that, uh, not that, um, you know, in one sense, yes, I have the power through Christ to put to deeds the desires of the flesh, but you actually owe it to him. You don't have another option. There is no other option. He already paid for it. You better give him what he deserves, right? And so um, that is how we ought to think. Yet he doesn't leave us there, right? Uh, he gives us the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, verse 16. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So I was thinking of this just in the sense of like honor and duty. So if you just kind of take a step back and um, because I'm not omniscient and so I can't think of more than one thing at a time. Um, I like to sometimes when I read scripture, think of like if it was the vital signs of life, just looking at one aspect or something, right? And so if we were to just take a step back and just look at the, like a culture of honor and indebtedness. And so he starts the passage with saying, we're indebted to him as bondservants. Like we owe a debt, we have to pay it back. And think of what kind of honor that would be. Of I'm giving honor and glory to the master, right? And so you might still have in a real society, a hunched over kind of like, I'm lowly, I'm just a bondservant, but this is what I got to do, right? And then, but if you're an heir, you're taught to walk up straight. You might be doing the same things as a servant, but it's an honor, it's a position of honor to do something out of honor for your father instead of a master. Does that make sense? Do you guys see the, uh, just the relational side of it is, is, Christ isn't leaving us just in the sense of bond servants of you owe this, I paid this, I bought you, give me what I owe, but you're my children, I'm raising you up. Like I always have with, um, I say this to Lily all the time, if she's like sitting down and like moping and doing something and like blah, 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 like that, yeah. Uh, I say, lift your head up, you're Leopold. That's all she's got to understand is just lift your head up. When you look at people, look at me in the eyes. Like, don't do that. That, it's good. See, you're doing great. Uh, just because she's a Leopold. She has to look me in the eyes. She has to look other people in the eyes. She has to, because that's who we are as a family. Um, we're going to hold ourselves with a dignity and respect. And this is, if you just take a step back from the passage and look at it in that sense of obedience, of not just I'm giving to Christ obedience and living in the spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh because I have to, because it was already paid for and I'm going to try to work it off or whatever, but that we're children of God. That means we're heirs, we're princess, princes and princesses. And so we can give them that same glory and have the same effect, but with a countenance of honor of dignity and of, uh, of restoration, right? Like a bondservant in a society is pretty lowly. There's, no lo there's nobody lower, right? And so scripture, you know, the Holy Spirit by inspired men uh, didn't leave us as bondservants. And I think that's a huge thing that we miss in evangelical culture, um, which actually I really respect in black American culture because they're always calling their sons kings, right? I think that's like, that's appropriate, right? And you should act, and they, you know, the, I think the thinking and thing is behind it is like, you're going to be a respectable man, right? The rest of culture says something differently, but you're actually a king. And so walk in such a manner, right? Um, and so just how, you, in that one passage, he's talking about the same type of obedience from the lowest in society to the highest in society, 
And so just think about the honor bestowed on us as individuals through that. And then think some more. Um, So let's move to our John passage. So sorry if this is a little kind of piecemeal. But so everybody knows that John 3 passage where Nicodemus comes at night uh, seeming to be ashamed because he's um, of the Pharisees and asks Jesus a bunch of questions and starts to inquire. And we know that Nicodemus becomes a disciple of Christ and leaves the Pharisee party. And so... um, I just want to hit on a couple things. First off, when Jesus says in, let's look it up. Okay, so when he says, unless someone is born again, he cannot perceive or see the kingdom of God. Uh, Nicodemus starts to answer the natural question about the kingdom of how can I be born again? Because that was probably a little confusing to him. But I love Jesus' answer when he says, like, you're a teacher of the law, like, you don't understand this. Like, it's like all over scripture kind of thing. Um, But what Nicodemus missed was that, remember how everybody, even the disciples, kept saying, like, when is the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? And because they were kept looking for something physical that they could see. Like when Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday and fulfilled all those prophecies and they thought that he was going to be set up as king and he was going to take over and take the land back from Rome because they were still looking for that physical kingdom. And even though Jesus had said all these parables and made it pretty clear, uh, and even if he says, whenever I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you, like, uh, you know, they just didn't get it, right? The kingdom wasn't a visible kingdom. And so that's often, uh, that was clearly missed by Nicodemus in this account. And so um, you are, just like we talked about in Romans, you are supposed to see an effect of the spirit. If you do not, there is no activity. Wherever the spirit is, there's activities of the spirit. I think, did we do that this last Sunday? Or maybe we're doing it this Sunday. I don't know. Uh, But, you know, we're going through the Holy Spirit series. And so, um, that's quite literal. We don't, you should see an effect when you're discipling people. There's so many different passages to bring them to. uh, When you think about this for your, and your introspect in your own life. Now, um, granted, fruit doesn't grow overnight. Uh, It usually takes a couple weeks. But, um, or a season, but there should be fruit, right? Wherever the spirit is, wherever the wind blows, you see it happening. There's no such thing as the wind blowing and you don't see leaves moving. It doesn't happen, right? And so there's supposed to be an effect. There's supposed to be lifestyle changes. You should see something when the spirit is there. And so uh, just briefly, like in the last five minutes, um, when Jesus says, like, just as the Son of Man will be lifted up, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in uh, the wilderness. And so, if you don't know the story in Exodus, then it's very hard to follow, right? What did Moses do with the serpent? He lifted it up. Why? What was happening? People were dying. People were dying from what? 
from serpents. <laughs> so God's like, hey, all these serpents are, I'm going to send all these serpents as a judgment that they justly um, accrued. And so serpents started coming in and biting people, and people started dying. That's a bad time. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't do snakes. Uh, not my thing. And you love snakes, Lily? Oh, Penny does? Good for her. She can have them. Uh, and so all these snakes uh, who were sent by God came into the camp, started biting people and killing them. And the solution was, right, to take the, it was a staff, right, that was shaped like a serpent, right, a scepter or whatever. Yeah. And so they were coming and looking up to that serpent, right, and then they were healed. By faith, joining together as a congregation, looking up and saying, uh, right, that'd be pretty wild if, like, I don't know, my mom had raccoons in her attic <laughs> uh, a few, like a month ago, and uh, she called pest control. And uh, you know what pest control didn't do? They didn't come and say, hold up like a stuffed animal raccoon and say, if you just look on this, your pest problem will be healed. <laughs> she would be like, what? What kind of crazy... <laughs> yeah, not worth my money. Um, that's not what they, they did. They set a trap uh, and got the babies. And so, so that would have been taken, right? Because you're uh, justified by faith as a gift from God. And just so through that act of faith, like faith and obedience uh, and like are never separated. And so if God's calling you into something, if God's calling you to have more faith, it means he's calling you to do something. They're never separated. And so um, that would have been pretty wild to be in a desert, uh, snakes all around you, <laughs> biting people. And Moses is like, come over here and look on the serpent and you'll be healed. And I'm like, well, maybe I'll just hit him with a rock or something. That makes more sense to me. But because uh, that faith is active. And so there's patterns in scripture. And most of us are looking for, when we're reading, if you're like me, then most of us are looking for just like, what are the didactic truths? opposed to the patterns and how do those relate. And so um, this is in John 3, but if you remember in John 2, uh, Jesus says the Son of Man will ascend and descend, or angels will ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And so he's quoting again from Genesis and Jacob's ladder or Jacob's stairway to heaven where he's napping on a rock and he sees angels ascending and descending uh, to the earth. Right, and so there's patterns there. It's not just proto. It's not just foreshadowings of what Christ was going to be, but there's also patterns in Scripture. And so Jesus is saying He's the ultimate pattern, but those patterns, us being in Christ, don't change. Right, because um, where we're we looking at here. Um, says, if I have told you earthly things, right before he gets into that, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Right? Um, how would you believe these things that are uh, in the spiritual? How would you believe 
how would you understand and you know God's pattern of people being born again of the spirit of faith of all these things that are technically unseen transcendental but are true in Christ right because there's patterns um And he relates it to, uh, obviously, whoever believes in him having eternal life. And so uh, the pattern is, or one of the patterns is that as they looked on the serpent, uh, the people are looking on Christ lifted up, but that's an eternal pattern that's continuing to look on him uh, eternally, right? And so... Um, And so I guess on the closing, on the last point, and so when you look at the pattern in the desert or in the um, wilderness of judgment coming on people, they were already judged, right? They were already condemned. They were already, uh, by their own deeds, sitting in judgment. And uh, this isn't the only time that this happened, <laughs> right? Only time that they sat in judgment because of their deeds. Um, but God continually sends over and over and over a means of salvation, right? So God in his mercy is always looking to send a means of salvation. He's always looking to redeem. He's always, uh, as Christ is saying here, the world is already condemned. He doesn't need to do anything else. They're already lost. He's not here for judgment. Um, He's here for redemption, right? And so, um, you know, obviously people, like when we disciple and evangelize, people have to be made aware of their sins and, but realize that they're already condemned, right? Uh, wherever the spirit is, there's life, there's movement. And so, um, uh, People, if they're aware, if the Spirit's active, they're already aware of their judgment, right? And what the Lord's trying to do is prepare them for redemption. And if it's not going to be us, it's going to be somebody else. But that's why Pentecost is a season of witnessing and testifying, because every season is. And so, uh, that's like one of God's ultimate patterns, is, is redemption mercy, grace streaming uh, into the earth uh, through his people uh, so that the whole world or the cosmos uh, might be saved through him. And so with that, let's pray and worship. Uh, Father, we glorify you here today. We pray that your, uh, worship, this worship tonight would be acceptable to you, that we would uh, give you the glory do your name, as the psalmist says. That we would do this through your son, Jesus Christ, that you would pour out your spirit on us, uh, that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would pour out your spirit and we would uh, know you as, as Abba, as Father. We would know you in a deeper sense here tonight. Amen.